The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled the garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. It's good to be with you. If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, go ahead and grab a Bible. Get to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, you're going to want a Bible in front of you because we're just going to have to do a lot of digging into the text this morning. Uh, and so you're going to want to see it in front of you. So Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, before we pray, I'm a, just a wreck this morning. Um, it started with a 5 a.m. sermon rewrite, and it's continued into that last song. I mean, are you, are you kidding me? Like, just, just to sit there, and as we're singing, right, I love you, Lord, the, the cry of our heart's desire that we would want God more, that we would love him, and all I can think about is the invitation first, that the only reason why we love him is because he first loved us. And so we'll get through it today. Thanks for being here. Um, man. The love of the Father for his children is all over the scriptures and all over this passage this morning. And so um, for all of those things and add sick kids on top of it, let's just pray together. Lord, we come before you earnestly desiring humble hearts and yet full of pride earnestly desiring repentant hearts and yet full of wickedness. Earnestly desiring hearts that are receptive and open to your love and yet full of doubt. And yet as we sang about even this morning, it's not us, it's Christ in us. And so we don't just accept our weaknesses, we don't just oblige our weaknesses. We don't just mitigate our weaknesses. We boast about our weaknesses. For when we're weak, you, Lord, are strong. So I just pray that'll be true this morning. Would you be with us over this time? Do what only you can do by the power of your spirit. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. 
Well, we are uh, continuing our series through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, where we're looking at these letters. So just by way of reminder, we've said it every week, John, he's the last living apostle to Jesus. He's been exiled onto the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. So they kick him to the island. And when he's there, he has this vision from the Holy Spirit where Jesus himself shows up and says, I'm going to give you seven letters that you're going to write to seven churches that exist in these seven ancient cities that make up the ancient Roman postal route. And as we've been exploring these letters in these cities, each week, we, we didn't plan it this way, but we've just sort of been landing at a kind of gut check question for our hearts and for our lives. And so week one, we looked at Ephesus, right? And we asked this question, have you abandoned your first love? And then in week two, we looked at Smyrna and we asked, are we willing to suffer for Jesus? And then week three in Pergamum, we asked, where are we compromising with sin? And then week four, Thyatira, we took it one step further and said, where are you not only tolerating sin and false teaching in your own heart, but also in the broader church? And what we're going to see today as we head next to Sardis is another strong warning from Jesus for a church he loves. And he desires to repent and turn to him. But before we get to the church in Sardis, let's talk about the city of Sardis, just so we have some context and some background. So Sardis, you can see on the map, is about 35 miles southeast of the city of Thyatira, where we were last week. It's located at the base of a Mount Tamalis and is fed by what's called the Practilus River. My apologies for any bad pronunciations. Now, if you were to go to ancient Sardis today, you would find the modern-day town of Sart. And what is left of the ancient city of Sardis, you can see in this picture behind me, is about 95% ruins, except for the Greek gymnasium, you can see there right prominently, which was built about 100 years or so after this letter from John. Fun random fact, if you want to see a life-size replica of this gymnasium, just go to Kansas City, Missouri. It's right there, very randomly. But in the ancient world, specifically the century leading up to the time of Jesus, Sardis wasn't ruins, it was actually flourishing. It was quite a dominant city. Sometime around 1200 BC, it became the capital of what was known as the Lydian Kingdom. And it was a city most notably, uh, or most known for their resources. So fun fact, Sardis was actually the very first city in the world in history to mint gold and silver coins. So they had a ton of natural resources, and they used these natural resources to build for themselves a wealthy, glorious, powerful, and prominent city. But that prominence didn't last very long. The city of Sardis became arrogant, and their arrogance actually led to their demise in a, a few ways. So the first is that they were very arrogant in how many and how much natural resources they had. And so they used it up and used it up without regulation, and eventually it ran dry, leading to an economic collapse. They were boastful and proud of their walls, and so they didn't properly guard weak spots from enemy intruders, and so their city was conquered not only once, but twice in the century leading up to this letter from John. And then if that wasn't enough, they experienced a massive earthquake around the year 17 AD. And so by the time John is writing to Sardis, 94 or 95 AD, it's a city running off of legacy. It's a city running off of history, running off of reputation. Theologian Robert Mounts notes this about Sardis. No city of Asia at that period showed such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. 
It was a city with a reputation of being great, and in reality, in present day, it was marked by death and decay. There was no actual life or power in the city. And what we're going to see in the passage Jenny just read for us in Revelation 3 is that the church in Sardis paralleled the city of Sardis. Look at what Jesus says in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The reputation of the church in Sardis wasn't matching the reality of the church in Sardis. Have you ever experienced a situation before where reputation and reality don't mix? So when Lindsay and I first moved to, the, to Charlotte, one of our first date nights out was to a Mexican restaurant not far from here. And I won't give you the name. It just, uh, let me just say it rhymes with Lulu's, all right? And so we went to Lulu's and we had a, I kid you not, the most fantastic time ever. I mean, the food was good. The service was fast and friendly and hospitable. We had an incredible time. The, the atmosphere, it was like maximum absolute coziness. It was everything you wanted in a night out. And I did what I always do, which I, was when I like something, I want everybody else in my life to know about it. And so I came back and I wanted everybody to know, hey, this is the awesome thing I found. And I want you to know that I knew about it first. Okay, that's how I kind of am wired. And so I started telling everybody. And so people started going because they trust my opinion occasionally. And so they went. And the problem was they kept coming back with, let's say, less than stellar reviews of this unnamed Mexican restaurant. They kept coming back with weird things like, hey, the service was slow and the people were kind of mean and the food was cold and it wasn't that good. And it was more than we wanted to spend. Like just all these reviews that just weren't lining up with the experience that I had had. And so eventually I was like, we got to go back. Like, we have to try it again. And so we got some friends, we went back to the restaurant, and sure enough, we experienced everything that everybody else had told me they experienced. The service was slow. Finally, when the waiter showed up to our table, it was like that, do you want me to be here? You ever had that experience? You're like, are you glad I'm, like, oh, I'm sorry I'm here, I just want some food. It took way longer than it should. And then to top it all off, we finally got the queso like an hour into the evening. And I wish I was kidding when I tell you that there was melted plastic inside of it. And then, okay, so I can deal with that. Somebody made a mistake, whatever. When we brought it up, they didn't even offer us a refund. Reputation was no longer matching reality. I've not been back. I never will go back. Never go ever, okay? <laughs> reputation wasn't matching reality. And Jesus says that's what's happening here in the church at Sardis. They have the reputation to every other church in the surrounding cities of being alive. And yet Jesus says, here's the reality. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. It reminds me of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I love the way that scholar G.R. Beasley Murray puts it. He says that the church in Sardis is like a beautifully adorned corpse in a funeral parlor. The appearance of life. Probably have some of the same religious deeds we saw in the church at Ephesus, right? Good works, good deeds. They're doing all of the right things. And yet on the inside, they're spiritually dead. That's the story of the church in Sardis we're going to explore this morning. Sardis is the dead church. Sardis is the dead church. 
Which leads to the question I've been wrestling with over the past couple of weeks. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a dead church? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Now, here's just a good Bible reading tip. It's going to come up a few times in today's sermon. Whenever we see something in Scripture that isn't immediately apparent, it's a really good technique to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So as you're reading the Bible this week, as you're spending time with the Lord, if you come across something confusing, let other scriptures interpret scripture. Don't Google it, right? Don't run to Google and be like, what is it? Let other scriptures inform the way that you are reading that particular scripture. And so we want to do that with this idea of being spiritually dead. Something the Bible talks a whole lot about. Let me just give you a few examples of how the scripture talks about what it means to be spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me on the screen. Paul, in this lead up to this great um, passage about salvation and being made alive to God, says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Or Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Or maybe the famous Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. One of the results of sin is both physical death and spiritual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when the Bible talks about this idea of being spiritually dead, what it means quite simply is being separated from God. It means you have not been welcomed into God's kingdom. You have not been made alive through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It means, very simply, if you are spiritually dead, you are not a Christian. And that's the language Jesus is going to use about some of the people within the church at Sardis. There are going to be others he's going to talk to in a little bit. We'll get there eventually. But to this group that he addresses first, he says, you have all of the deeds and reputation of being alive. Good works. Good deeds. You go to church, you read the Bible, you care for the poor, you share the gospel, all the things, and yet the reality of your soul is death. You're not a Christian. You don't know me. Which I think then leads to where I want to spend the rest of our time together today. How do you know if that's you? How do you know if you're spiritually alive or dead? How do you know if you're a Christian or not? I get this question all the time as a pastor. How do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know if I'm actually a follower of Jesus? And I think Revelation chapter 3 is going to help us answer that question. There's a lot of things you can look at the scriptures. Revelation 3 in particular, I think, gives us some warning signs. So we're going to diagnose Sardis together and see three warning signs that we might actually be spiritually dead, though we have the appearance of life. Now, before we get into those three, I just want to be really clear. Here's um, why I didn't want to preach this sermon this morning. My fear is that what happens when you preach on a conviction about the assurance of salvation, what happens when you preach and ask this question, do you know if you're actually a Christian or not, that it tends to be what happens because of the deception of the enemy, that those who should have no assurance have it, and those who should have assurance don't. And so my fear, even before we get into the warning signs, is that some of us in the room need to hear a conviction from the Holy Spirit that we're not actually following Christ, and we won't. And others of us need to hear assurance that we are sealed and found in Christ, yet not I, but Christ in me from now into eternity, and yet we won't. And so before we even move any farther, I've already, we've already prayed, but I'm going to pray again. Because I'm, I'm, I, I've, I've been terrified about this all week, and especially this morning at 5 a.m. when I'm praying for you. And so let me just pray real quick that the Spirit would not do that. That he would be what, powerful and true. Lord, give us eyes to see. Do what only you can do, Lord. 
Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction for those in the room who need conviction, and would you bring confidence for those in the room who need confidence? Lord, I pray against the power of the enemy. I pray against the deception of the devil. Lord, I pray against the foolishness of our own hearts. Lord, you do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, come, give what you need to give. Conviction or confidence. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three warning signs of spiritual death. Number one, no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The first warning sign that you're spiritually dead, that you don't actually know Jesus, is that the Holy, there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you remember, each letter to each church starts with a reference to some reality about Jesus that connects to what is happening or not happening within the church. So Smyrna, right? The opening of Smyrna was the one who died and came to life, and then the letter of Smyrna was be faithful unto death. Or Pergamum, or Thyatira last week, right? The one whose feet are like burnished bronze, meaning Jesus is holy and pure, calls them to then be holy and pure in life and doctrine. Same is true happening here in the letter to Sardis. So look at it with me, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven Stars. All right, let's, again, scripture interpreting scripture. This is kind of confusing. Seven spirits, what's happening here, right? So let's look elsewhere in scripture to make sense of the seven spirits of God. All right, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It's going to be on the screen. It's a prophecy about Jesus. Here's what it says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You guys are good at math. How many things is that? Seven, right? Theologians refer to this passage with what is called the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Stay with me, all right? There's one Holy Spirit, one Holy Spirit who is part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who theologians argue, and Isaiah 11 says clearly, acts or ministers to God's people in seven distinct ways ways. All right, so that's the first thing you have to understand. Second thing is, a few weeks ago, we talked about how numbers in the book of Revelation are used symbolically, right? We talked about how different numbers represent different things. He tells them you're going to be in jail for X number of days, and really that's not a literal days. It's a, a figure of speech. It's, it's used symbolically. Well, the number seven throughout the Bible and throughout the book of Revelation is symbolic of perfection, fullness. Think about creation, Right? God creates the world, and then he rests, and it's a seven-day period. It's a symbol that this creation of God is complete. It's whole. It's in fullness. So Isaiah 11, 2, right? Seven-fold ministry of the Holy Spirit. The number seven used in the book of Revelation as a number of fullness. And so what's happening here is Jesus is starting the letter to the church at Sardis. I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. In, in doing that, he's reminding them that he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. By implication, then, what's true about them? They do not. You see that? That's what's happening here. He's, he's remembering, he's reminding them, I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is also meant to live among my people, and yet you don't. How not having the Holy Spirit is evidence that you are not alive, that you are dead. Because the promise of the scriptures is that when you put your faith in Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. That's very clear. There's no second baptism. There's no later time where the Holy Spirit fills you. There's no Christian who's not filled. When you become a Christian, hold the God, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. I think about Acts 2. 
right? The day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, right? The, whole, he's, the crowd are cut to the heart. They're like, what do we do? How do we be saved? And he says, very simply, repent, believe in Jesus, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Always goes with salvation. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside every Christian. And when he dwells inside of us, he does some incredible things. Let me just show you a few of these. He, he guides us into all truth about Christ, John 16. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and shapes us to be more like Jesus, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the wonderful counselor. He gives us peace in our troubles, John 14. He convicts us of sin and helps empower our repentance, John 16. He confirms to us our salvation. He's the Spirit that cries out from within us, Abba, Father, Galatians 4. It keeps us and seals us for that day of salvation, Ephesians 1. So the first warning sign, the first warning sign that we are not alive to the things of God, that we are actually spiritually dead, is that there is no evidence of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Like if you were to trace back the past trajectory of your life, have you seen the Holy Spirit at work? Have you seen him open up the scriptures to make them alive to you and show you Jesus? Have you seen him sanctifying you and convicting you of sin such that you look more like Jesus today than you did a year ago? Do you sense an overwhelming peace that passes understanding? Not all of the time, not, not okay, that's all I'm ever going to live in, but this reality that it enters our life when we need it the most. You've seen his work. What Revelation 3.1 causes us to do is to say, if we don't see evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, then we may not be filled with him. And if we are not filled with him, scriptures are very clear. We do not know Christ. That's number one. Doing all right? Thanks, Brent. Number two. <laughs> A lack of passion or zeal for Jesus. A lack of passion or zeal for Jesus. Stay with me. Make sure you hear everything I say. Verse two, you have the reputation of being alive, you're dead, wake up, strengthen what is, remains, and is about to die. He says it again in verse three, if you will not wake up. Jesus equates being spiritually dead with being spiritually asleep. Some will call Sardis the slumbering church, right? Jesus says, wake up to the church in Sardis. Have you ever been in a conversation uh, or had a task at work or maybe a drive that you've done a lot and it just feels like you're just like doing it in a daze? Have you ever had that moment? This happens to me a ton when I'm driving somewhere familiar and it's like I blink and I'm like, I'm here now? <laughs> Anybody else experience that? Where you're like, I don't remember any part of the drive. No, just me. Sweet. Awesome. Um, I don't remember any of the drive, but now I know that I went from there to here. Like I'm just kind of going through it because I've done it so much. It's just my normal rhythm and habit. That's sort of the picture of Revelation 3 for what it means to be dead. You're sleepwalking through the motions of the religious life. What does this look like? It looks like you're in worship and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Not like you're having an off day, you've had an off week. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you're just sort of ho-humming your way through worship. When he is the lamb who was saying, I love you. Right? Like it's just like just kind of, right? Or month after month, not like it's Monday morning and it's tough, not like it's just become a rhythm and routine, but every time for the trajectory of your life, you've opened the scriptures, it's like you're reading a phone book. All right, let's get through it real quick. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, check, feeling better about myself, sweet. Prayer life is just a checklist. There's no intimacy. There's never been intimacy with the Lord. Like, all right, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this meal. Awesome. No heartburn. Let's go. 
going through the motions. There's no religious excitement. There's no joy. There's no passion. There's no fervent love for the things of God. Reminds you of another church, right? Revelation chapter two, the church in Ephesus, just going through step after step, mundane, routine, boring. And Jesus points to it and says, it may be a sign that you're spiritually dead. Lack of passion or zeal for Christ can be evidence, church, that we don't actually know him. Now, this is where I want to be really clear. I don't mean a season of dryness. I I don't mean the ebbs and flows of life, right? Because we all experience these ebbs and flows. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, there are times where Jesus feels less like presence and more like absence to you, right? Where it's just like I'm going through it and it is religious motions and I need to keep being faithful, but I just don't feel anything right now. I don't have a sense of passion and zeal for the Lord. Those seasons are going to come. And there's a lot of reasons for those seasons, right? For some of us, we're, we're entering into that season or we're in that season because of suffering. I'm not going to be passionate about the Lord. Do you know what's going on in my life right now? I'm just clinging to what I know to be true while I walk through this with the Lord. For others of us, there's no passion or zeal for Christ because we have unconfessed or unrepented sin. Right? We've stifled the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't have passion and joy for the Lord because we have this thing that we're secretly harboring and keeping from him and from others. So I'm not saying you're not going to walk through seasons of ebbs and flow. What I am saying is that at some point, if you look back at the trajectory of your life and go, I've never been excited about the things of God, could that be evidence that I don't actually have a living faith? And there's two questions I think we have to ask to kind of get underneath the surface. The first is this, how long, if you're in that season, you're wondering, is this me? Is it an ebb and flow or am I actually not passionate about the things of God? Two questions. One, how long has the season of apathy towards Christ lasted? This is worth asking that question. Is this a three-month thing, a one-month thing, a six-month thing, or have you never actually been excited about the things of God? Was there ever a time where you were just caught up in the wonder and grace and mercy of our Father? Second question to ask, if you find yourself in that and you're wondering, is it an ebb and flow, or am I actually lacking distinct passion for Christ? A good question to ask is, are you bothered by your lack of passion for Jesus? Am I bothered by it? Maybe you don't use this phrase, maybe you've never heard it before, maybe it's just a personal pet peeve of mine, but we hear a lot this language of the dark night of the soul has become very commonplace in Christian vernacular. I'm sad, I'm going through it, I'm in a dark night of the soul. And and Christians will use that to justify a lack of desire for the Lord, except when you actually go back and read St. John of the Cross, who first wrote about the dark night of the soul, they missed that one of the key indicators of the dark night is that people are freaked out that they're in the dark night, and they're worried about their apathy, That they're apathetic, but they're not apathetic about being apathetic. It's worth asking, is that you? That's number two. Number three, reliance on your good works to save you. Third indicator that you are spiritually dead, you're not a follower of Jesus, that you still rely on your good works to save you. Look at verse two. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I've not found your works complete. Your works are lacking. The the phrasing Jesus uses here carries with it the connotation of the works not being able to achieve their desired purpose or goal. So when Jesus says, I have not found your works complete, what he means is that their works, their deeds are not doing what they're hoping they would do. So Sardis has the reputation of good works, the reputation of being alive, right? They're doing the right things, though everything on the surface would say that they're spiritually vibrant and alive. Jesus says those works are not accomplishing what you are hoping to accomplish. What are they hoping to accomplish being made right with him? 
Because here's the reality of the scriptures. They're very clear on this. Good works cannot make you spiritually alive. Good works are evidence of saving faith. Good works are absolutely the fruit that results of a saving faith in Jesus. They come from saving faith. If you don't have good works, it is a question of if you actually have saving faith, yes and amen. But the good works cannot save you. These are the terrifying words of Jesus in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day many will, and just for the record, according to Matthew and later on, the will of the Father is to believe in Jesus such that you enter into the kingdom. So don't, let's make sure we're clear on that. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not do all of these things that would give us a great spiritual reputation? Verse 13, and then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Good works cannot save us. Church, I think this is still one of the primary false gospels in the time and place that we live in. Thinking our religious deeds are what make us right with God. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I read the Bible. I'm a Christian because I'm nice to my neighbors. I'm a Christian because I help those in need. I'm a Christian because I tell others about God. I'm a Christian because I give money to the church. I'm a Christian because, fill in the blank, to whatever makes sense for you. Here's the reality, church. If anything finishes that statement except for, because I have put my faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you do not have the gospel. Do you you hear me on that? There's a severely lack of amens. (laughs) If anything fills the end of that statement, I am a Christian because, and the next thing you do not plead is the blood of Jesus on your behalf, you do not have the real gospel. You do not have the reality of salvation shown to us in the person and work of Jesus. We are saved. We become spiritually alive through faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. That's it. That is how we are saved. We turn from our sin and we trust in Christ. And if that's not true of you, if you have not trusted in Jesus, and I don't mean like you're still wrestling with legalism. I don't mean like you're still trying to put to death, earning your way to God. I mean, you have not trusted in Jesus. You're not a Christian. Ephesians 2 says it very clearly, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is only found in Christ and Christ alone. We do not add to it. We cannot add to it. We do not replace it. It's faith in Christ and Christ alone. So all of that lands us here. Are you spiritually dead? It's a question to be honest with ourselves about this morning. Are you spiritually dead? As you look at the evidence, as you look at the warning signs, Are you spiritually dead? Do you see these signs of spiritual death in your life? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit at work? Like, can you you point to how he's working to comfort you or convict you or sanctify you or draw you closer to God? Does he speak to you through the scriptures? Is he guiding you into truth and the reality of God? If it's a, a hard season, a dark season, do you see evidence of that even in your recent history? Do you have an underlying passion for the things of God and for Christ Jesus? Are you eager to worship him? Are you excited about his word? Are you zealous to be used for him and his kingdom purposes? And if not, are you bothered at all about the fact that you're not? You trusted in Jesus for salvation. 
Have you given up trying to save yourself, earn your way to God, be a good enough person, have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, or have you thrown yourself onto the mercy and grace of our Father? Now, I said at the beginning, and I prayed this, is that the Holy Spirit would do what he needs to do to either bring conviction or confidence, right? And so what I want to do is I want to land with one of the two appropriate responses to Revelation chapter 3 in Sardis. First, I want to talk to those of us in the room who maybe you're experiencing some conviction right now. Maybe the Spirit's moving and you're trying your best to push it down, push him down. You're trying to ignore him, trying to not listen to him, but he's bringing it up. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I actually need to wrestle with this. Maybe I need to have a conversation with someone who loves Jesus and loves me. Maybe I really need to seek this out with the Lord. Here's the invitation for those of us experiencing that conviction. Revelation 2, Revelation 3, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Verse 3, remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. That's the invitation. If you find yourself experiencing conviction from the Holy Spirit, I'm not actually sure I'm a follower of Jesus. Very simply, first, wake up. Realize this is you. Own it, embrace it, acknowledge it to God and others. But Tim, I've been doing the church thing for like 10 years. That'd be really embarrassing. No, it wouldn't. Praise God that he would draw you to himself even over the long haul. But I have the reputation of being alive. Okay. Reputation doesn't make you right with God. But I've, I'm serving, I'm leading, I'm in roles that people rely on me for. Awesome. Think about how much better those would be if you were actually a follower of Jesus. Wake up. Come into the light. Second, remember. He says, remember what you received and heard. Remember the gospel. Embrace the good news of Jesus. See what Christ has done for you through his perfect life, suffering, death, and resurrection. And then third, the invitation of all who want to follow Jesus. Repent. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus for salvation. Here's the promise that Romans gives us. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will, not may, not might, not potentially, you will be saved. Today you can turn from your sin. Today you can turn from your self-reliance, trust in King Jesus. If that's you, if that's what the Holy Spirit is stirring during our time of response, we're gonna have a prayer team on the side. I'll be on the back over here. If you wanna come, just talk get prayer, wrestle through this together. Now to those who, I pray, Lord willing, are experiencing the sweet gift of assurance, who have that confidence, the Holy Spirit is speaking over you reminders of the delight of Christ, that God knows you and that you are his child and that you're seated because of the shedding of Christ's blood in the heavenly places with God forever, brought into his kingdom. If that's you, here's the encouragement for you. This is true of those in Sardis as well. Verse four. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, I want you to notice those last three words. They are worthy. Here's the invitation for you from Jesus this morning. Rejoice. Rejoice. Jesus says there are some in Sardis who have not failed to come alive who are walking with me in white, for they are worthy. And you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, that that worthiness is not because these other people in Sardis are awesome or great or super good at doing Christian things, because that's true apparently of all of them in Sardis. They're worthy, not because of themselves, but because of the free gift of grace in Christ Jesus. 
And so that's you. If you're like, I have sweet assurance right now. You're saying these, these things, these warning signs, and the Spirit is just reminding me that he is working in my life, and I do trust in him, and I have fervor for Jesus, and I see these evidences that I'm trusting in him for salvation. Then look at those last three words. They are worthy, and celebrate, and rejoice, and worship King Jesus because he has found you worthy, not based on your own merit, but based on the finished merit of Christ based on his work, his sacrifice, his perfection to welcome you into the kingdom, that we, apart from Jesus, are unworthy to delight before the throne of God, and yet we are worthy through Jesus. So what do we do as we look at this? We don't, oh yeah, I'm awesome, I follow Jesus. No, are you kidding me? We don't go, man, dodged a bullet, thanks Jesus for saving me, whew, In humble delight, we worship him. Humble delight. This this should show us the, the warning signs of being spiritually dead and the realities of the scriptures that point to how little we have to do with our salvation should point us to this reality. What do I have to do but worship him in return? Just celebrate him in return. And here's the promise. Let's close with this. Here's the promise whether you are experiencing conviction and you trust in Christ for the first time or you're celebrating and delighting in salvation that Christ gave you at some point in the past, here's the promise for all who trust in Jesus. Verse five, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So these folks are dead. They're in spiritual burial cloths, spiritual decay and death. And yet Jesus says to those who conquer, I offer white garments. You see what happens in the, in the offer of the gospel is not only that we are made neutral with God, that we are forgiven of our past sins, we are forgiven of our rebellion against him, but we are not just made neutral, we are welcomed into the kingdom. We are given Christ's righteousness. The theologians call this the great exchange. Christ takes our sin on himself on the cross, gives us his white garments of perfection and righteousness back, only through faith. So Jesus says to the one who conquers, which we know, we've said every week, is not because we're awesome in conquering, but because we trust in the conquering one, he will clothe us with white garments, perfection and righteousness, not based on us, but based on his work, where we stand before the throne of God, and he says, why do I let you in? And you go, don't you see Jesus when you look at me? Because that's what the gospel promises. And then he says, I'll never blot their name out of the book of life. I will confess them before the Father. I know them. They are welcome. They are in my kingdom now and forever. So church, let us have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what I want to do as we close is I just want to give us what we always have, which is a space to respond. A lot of words, a lot of text. Let's let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. I'm going to give us a moment of silence to pray to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, do you want me to have conviction or do you want me to have confidence and give me the boldness to trust you? If I'm not sure, give me the boldness to ask help. Let me talk to these other Christians in the room who love me and love you. Let me ask. Let me be courageously honest and humble. I pray the Spirit will give what the Spirit needs to give as and I'll move us into a time of response. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We trust you. And we trust that your Holy Spirit is present with us right now, working and moving and doing what only he can do, Lord. God, so I, I pray 
that you would take your word, you would speak to us. So Lord, we take a moment before we move on, before we respond, before we do all of these things, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak confidence or conviction. What do you need to give us, Lord? Speak. We wait for you.